Hey everyone, welcome back. This is season two, episode one of Whiskey Queens. This week we're talking about Uncle Nearest's premium whiskey and taking a dive into how to properly taste and develop our whiskey vocabulary. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to check us out on whiskeyqueens.com, at the Whiskey Queens on Instagram, and be sure to give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks, and here's the show. Ooh, welcome back, Paul. Welcome back. That was a better pop than the first one I did. <laughs> Technical difficulties. That was technically our second pop to start the second season. Exactly. I figured that's exactly what I did. I figured two pops for season two. Pop, pop. And here we are. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you. And you could not get rid of us that easily. So here we are for another round of these conversations. Yeah, too bad for y'all. <laughs> Uh, so I think it's obvious, um, given the timing of when this episode is going to air and when we are recording it, but um, why, uh, why are you drinking this weekend, Paul? So just to give people context upon the date on which we are recording, we are recording on Sunday, November 8th of 2020. Uh, and I'm drinking for a couple reasons. Uh, one, obviously, uh, or maybe not so obviously, I don't know if I've pronounced it uh, overwhelmingly on the podcast, but I uh, am a supporter of the Biden-Harris ticket and they won. Uh, so obviously I'm very uh, pleased at that outcome. I recognize there are many people in the country who are sort of reeling, similar to how I reeled in 2016. So mm -hmm. I extend a degree of empathy to them. Uh, and the other reason I'm drinking is one, to toast that victory and then history making victory, mind you, with the first uh, woman vice president and uh, woman of color um, to achieve that office. But then also the sad news that was announced today was the passing of Alex Trebek. I know. Shortly before I jumped on, I got that CNN alert. Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm also cheersing to him this week and his amazing run uh, in sort of filling all of our lives in some form or fashion on Jeopardy. Mm-hmm. Uh, similarly, I, democracy prevails. That's why I'm toasting this weekend. I was super, super incredibly excited and relieved. I feel like I've taken a deep breath for the first time in almost four years at this point uh, when we found out that Biden won the nomination. So I'm feeling really good. Like, um, yeah, like I was able to take a deep breath for the first time in a very long time. And I think that the, you know, the, the four days of, uh, um, vote counting oh. only sort of added to the, the, the level of exhale that everyone achieved at the end of it. Mm -hmm. But here we are. And our folks didn't have to wait that long. We only took about a two or a three week break. And with that, we did take some notes, took some time, reflected on what we did. Um, so we have a plan. We actually have a plan going into this season, which I, I venture to say is different than our first season. I don't know that we had a plan, which I don't think was a bad thing. I think we had a lot of fun with it. Uh, but this season, we kind of know what works and we kind of know what we want to do. And I think we're going to end up refocusing on the book that we ended up telling a lot of you about, uh, The Complete Whiskey Course, A Comprehensive School in 10 Classes by Robin Robinson. Uh, so we both have copies of this and started talking about it in the beginning and then we kind of didn't really mention it towards the latter part of season one. So we're going to revisit. We're going to work through two chapters over the course of this next season and talk about tastings and also talk about American whiskey and American craft whiskey. Um, and by episode 10, 
I think we're going to try our hand at designing a tasting based off of what we've learned from how we should be tasting whiskey and what we've learned about American distillers and American craft distillers. So I think that's going to be how we try to wrap up this season. Um, I know we're only on episode one, but I'm kind of excited because I think that'll be really fun to try and take everything we learn over the next 10 episodes and then roll it into a fun Nick and Paul version of a tasting. So I'm pretty excited about our little roadmap here. Yeah, it should be fun. It's nice to sort of have a, a somewhat of a planned arc versus just sort of being like, what the fuck am I drinking this week? <laughs> what did I call it? An, an arc within an arc. Yes. I mean, I'm still probably going to end up having those moments where like, what the fuck am I drinking this week? But at least I know the thematics of our episodes as opposed to our last run, which was sort of like, what do we feel like this week? Hey. <laughs> I'm not going to lie because, because I'm covering part of the book in this episode. I didn't buy a new whiskey or find anything new. I'm actually revisiting one we talked about in a previous episode and I'm going to leave the new whiskey to you in the episode. Uh, so yes. Very I'm excited. On monkey shoulder at the moment. Oh, monkey shoulder. Um, ooh, I didn't mean to say it that way. I was like, do you want to share a feeling? Do you have a feeling about monkey shoulder? Um, the monkeys are cute. Watch out, this the, is a hot take, hot take. The, the name is cute. <laughs> it's not my favorite. Okay, fair enough. I'm just going to leave it there. Now I'm curious, is there a reason why it's not your favorite? Just, like, just, just Okay, that's fair. It's not, you know, no offense to the dear people at Monkey Shoulder. I'm sure, like, it's the thing about a palate, right? Some of us like certain flavor uh, combinations and some of us don't. And for whatever reason, that one for me, uh, I don't know if you experienced this or not, but it has a, I don't, I haven't had it in a minute, but it, it's something about the lingering aftertaste. I just don't appreciate oh okay i got it yeah so there is um there's and we'll get into this when i start talking about the chapter that we're focused on but there is a bit of like a bite at the end of it mm -hmm. kind of like chewing on charred wood almost at the and, end and i can do i am fine with this what we would i guess what we would call once we have a fucking wheel and i learn all <laughs> these things um uh, what we call sort of the spice, the burn. Like I can deal with the burn mm -hmm. right at the end, but that's not what monkey shoulder, like it, 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 it's, it's like a, to, for a lack of, for, for my, for a lack of better words in my untrained palate, uh, I will say that it has sort of a funk at the end that I just don't, it's just not my personal jam. Okay. A funk at the end. So I will reference a wheel later on. And I know, I know I need to, I'll talk to Brendan again about the goddamn wheel. We will eventually get our own customized wheel out there that kind of meets our needs and everyone else's needs. Um, but yeah, I wonder if that falls under like the sulfury category that you see in some wheels when you're talking Maybe. about the, the funk in the monkey shoulder. Um, yeah, that's Maybe. But I'm drinking this week, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'm drinking Uncle Nearest 1856 Premium Whiskey from Tennessee. Uh, and I will be talking more about it. And as Nick knows, I'm not as super prepared as I hoped I would be for this episode, but that is life. And so we're just gonna, we're just gonna wing it. Yeah, we're gonna roll with it. We'll, we'll meet you with empathy and grace as you deliver unto us what you do know about this whiskey. 
Wow. I feel like, <laughs> I feel like I'm in a sermon on a mm. Sunday. That was my mini soapbox. And now I'll get down and talk about chapter two in the book, which is actually focused completely on tastings. So what I'm hoping is after talking about this a little bit, um, maybe you'll be able to kind of give us your take on the whiskey that you are drinking. Cause I don't have <laughs> uncle nearest in my home. So I'm hoping you can give us some descriptors by the end. Let of us that. hope and pray. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. So I was charged with looking through chapter two in the book, which really focuses on tastings and how to go about properly tasting, which we've talked about in the past. Uh, we've talked about it in the first couple of episodes of episode one or season one. Um, but what really got me in this chapter is in the very first paragraph where it, they mention how everyone always focuses on how they're not a connoisseur. It's the Ooh. first thing out of someone's mouth. They don't have a trained palate. They're not a connoisseur. They don't know what they're talking about. They're, the untrained palate. The untrained palate. Um, and I love that they called this out because it inherently talks about the fact that there's a layer of snobbery when it comes to wine and it comes to whiskey and people immediately think they don't know what they're talking about because they don't necessarily know how to go about it or how to describe it um, and they don't trust their own senses so that really spoke to me because i felt the same way i mean to me whiskey was just brown liquor and i didn't know that it should taste multitudes of ways um, and the same thing with wine so the big piece between kind of us common folks and the common sewers and other experts is really the vocabulary. So use what you have. If, you, if you're smelling something, go with it. Um, see where that initial descriptor takes you. And sometimes you can build upon what you initially think you're smelling or tasting. And that can lead to what you're actually smelling or tasting. Maybe you're smelling baked goods or you're tasting baked goods when you first open something or take a sip. And as you experience it and it opens up, maybe it's not baked goods, maybe it's cinnamon, and that's what you're relating it to. So sometimes your own vocabulary can lead you there. Uh, so getting into, without getting into a really deep anatomy lesson, the nose is a really incredibly important part of the entire tasting process. So the receptors in your nose are tied to your ability to taste via the olfactory bulb in your nasal cavity. Uh, that connects to the frontal lobe in your brain. So when you smell something and then taste it, the information from your nose pairs with the information from your tongue and taste buds, and it produces what we understand to be flavor. Uh, so something else I found really interesting based off of that, um, I, didn't, I hadn't considered before uh, the fact that cultural heritage plays a role in this, uh, your ability to understand flavor through heritage, uh, your ability to kind of expand your own vocabulary by tasting different things. And that's limited by our own experiences as people, how we're brought up, what foods we taste, what types of things we do and don't drink. Um, so if you've never tasted allspice or clove, how would you be able to use that as a descriptor or an identifying note down the road? Uh, so your own personal experience will color or not your tasting experience when it comes to whiskeys and when it comes to wines. So the more you can broaden your palate and the more things you can taste, the more benefit you'll see when you start to taste whiskeys and start to try to understand what you're actually, you know, participating in. Um, so they also talk about the idea of visualizing aroma. I struggled with this a bit and I, I I'm still trying to quite understand what they're talking about. Um, but what it was, was one of the blenders talking about how he tries to visualize aroma in the sense of colors and shapes. Um, I get that to a degree in the sense that like sharp flavors, fine. I can see maybe sharp flavors. People visualize sharps, corners, edges. I don't know. Um, 
I'm more so it resonates with me when I look at the Dingle single malt I have. It's matured in sherry casks and sherry is kind of like a pink colored wine. And you can see that in the whiskey. So you can actually see that. And I think sherry when I see the whiskey because it has that pink hue to it. So the worst part, sorry, my yeah. immaturity and the fact that I did do a little pregame before the show, even though I failed in my research, is that when you said Dingle Single, it made me laugh. <laughs> so I will never release our footage of this onto the internet, but I can see Paul chuckling in the corner of my computer monitor as I talk through all of this. And I have to sometimes wonder what part he's laughing at as I'm talking. I'm glad you provided context. Thank you for that. Ah, I'm so. also, just for record, folks, I'm also wearing my Be Kind Star Trek shirt today, which I will post on our Instagram page. And I think it's delightful. So I love the Be Kind shirt. What were you wearing the other day, though? Oh, my other Star Trek shirt? Yes. I'm a yes. nerd. Yes. Uh, I was wearing a Trek the Vote shirt. See, these are the types of shirts I need in my life and you need to share with me when you come across them. Okay, fine. Okay, thank you. Uh, so anyways, um, now in terms of tastings, so whether you realize it or not, um, you're moving through three steps when you're moving through a tasting. Uh, first of all, three. three. Three steps, that's what they tell me. That's what the book is telling me. Uh, so acknowledgement, basically you're starting to taste something, your body is starting to smell and understand that you're going through the process of tasting something. So it's that initial acknowledgement of like senses are being triggered. Um, second is the declaration. This is pretty much something hits your tongue, you smell something and you like it or you don't. It's the initial reaction. This is pleasant. This is awful. I like it. I don't like it. It's okay. Um, and then the third being the kind of articulation. Uh, so this is where you start to break down what you're smelling, what you're tasting. This is where you're getting into the details. So step three, articulation, is where the tasting wheel can become really handy because if you don't necessarily have that vocabulary yet, you can use it to start to hone in on what you're initially tasting and where it might fall in the wheel. And then from there, it provides you a pathway to find the right descriptors for what you're looking for. Uh, so the entire purpose of a tasting wheel is to help you find the right words. That's really what it's there for. In the book, the wheel that they reference is the Scotch Whiskey Research Institute's wheel. To me, I find it super intimidating. There's 19 major categories that I then branch Yep, that then branch off into their own subset of categories, and then those branch off into another subset of descriptors. I find it completely overwhelming. Uh, there's a simpler wheel that I will reference that is from Whiskey Magazine. Uh, so I will put that link up in show notes. Uh, with that one, there are only eight categories. I find it much easier because they're pretty straightforward. Uh, so when you reference it, the eight initial categories are wood, wine, cereal, fruit, floral, peat, faint, and sulfurs. So which is why I mentioned sulfur when you were talking about how you have a dislike for the funky taste of monkey shoulder. So yeah, I get it. And these are better. Well, I shouldn't say better. I, I, I shouldn't say better because it's not like I've done a deep dive into the 19 major categories of the whiskey wheel because I'm a failure in our podcast. <laughs> um, but I don't know that I like all of these particular ones as I just sort of think about for our future whiskey wheel that I know uh, your dear, delightful husband and uh, founder of, uh, what the hell is <laughs> Brendan Roddy Art. There you go. Uh, dot com. 
Yeah, that's yeah. the website. Yep. Uh, he makes great ceramics, ladies and gentlemen, so you should buy some. Oh, um, nice little call out. I'm good for the call outs, if anything. I may not be good for my own research, but I'm good on the call outs. No, but I, I feel like we need to sort of have a little powwow, if you will, on what should be included in our Whiskey Queen's Whiskey Tasting Wheel, because while I appreciate some of these, um, similar, there, yeah, there are categories in the other wheel that make sense, but there's just so many of them that it feels completely overwhelming. Like, one of the major categories, and it includes things like faints, cereals, florals, fruits, but it also includes a category called nasal effect, which to me is not a category I'm thinking of when I initially taste a whiskey. Um, and then they go into things like sours and oilies or primary tastes and mouthfeels. Like mouthfeel is not a category I'm thinking of when I taste something. And I think yeah, that's what I'm thinking is. of is does it burn? Yeah. Or does it not burn? Yep. A lot. So I think our goal by the end of the season is to work with Mr. Roddy to see if we can find some type of marriage between the giant 19 intimidating wheel of death and the super simplistic eight spoke wheel from Whiskey Magazine and make our and, own little interpretation. Yes. And one that may have a little flair to it, if you will. Mm. Like maybe we'll have a flavor that's like, yes, queen, tastes good. <laughs> um, or, it's, whole, it's whole slice on the wheel. Or train wreck. Mm -hmm. um, no, I'm kidding. Those, those are obviously are not flavors. Those are descriptors that I may apply to things when I feel like it. That's totally fair. Um, but like I said, it's a really simple wheel. It's a really easy way to start to understand how something might taste and what categories you might be finding flavor notes in and then be able to find the words you're really looking for. Um, a couple of examples would be uh, with the wood, you're typically going to be tasting what the whiskey was matured in. Uh, with wine, like I said when I mentioned Dingle Distillery, they mature in sherry casks, so you do get a little bit of that wine sherry taste on the whiskey. Uh, the cereal notes are going to be the grains that were used in the distillation process. Um, and then you can pick up fruits, like with Monkey Shoulder, there is kind of like an orange peel, orange zestiness to it. Um, it does kind of fade out into kind of a funk. Not, a funk. I don't want to say smoky because it's not a peated scotch. It, it's, no, it's not super. I should go grab some. You know what? Maybe I will just so I can tell. Paul's going to go, One moment, folks. ladies and gentlemen. One moment, ladies and gentlemen. So the fun of having a giant bar, not giant. I shouldn't say giant. I'm not like fucking, I'm not a, a bar owner. But having my bar cart in my expanding array of whiskeys is that when we talk about certain things, I'm like, you know what, I don't remember, so let me go get it. Let me go find it. Ooh, See, there's now, Monkey's shoulder. There she is. So now I'm curious if you are gonna get the same thing that you remember getting when you drank this the last time. It's so, it, what does it smell like to you on the nose? On the nose, I get vanillas. Like I get I something really, I get something so, really, really pleasant and simple on the beginning. The first time I tried this, I was like, oh, girl, it smells good. Yeah, it does. And then I tasted it and I was like, meh, 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 So I remember us talking about this and I remember us both saying, because one, one of their recipes is a scotch and soda. And I think I would love this with club soda. So none of y'all can see this, but his face isn't that unpleasant right now as he's sipping his way through this. It's not as unpleasant as I remember. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Is it as funky as you remember? 
Um, no, it's not. But it's, is it still there? Is there still something on the back end? There is like a bitterness on the back end. Yeah, and I can't, it's like, um, it's like that, grapefruit rind. It's I mean, like it's rind. Really, it's really interesting because I'm okay with it today. Yeah. But when, we, when I had it at my friend's house and tried it for the first time, I was not. But I'll tell you, I think the difference is, is that day I was going through a series of different whiskeys with them and doing like our own mini tasting. Oh, yeah. And we did monkey shoulder last and we should not have done that last. It, it was a poor choice in the order. And so yeah. I think that that led to sort of, eh. And then I've also, uh, I had it on our episode that we tasted it on, I don't remember what episode, blah, blah, blah. But um, y'all can look it up yourselves. I'm, <laughs> I'm here to do the work for you. Um, and I didn't mind it then. And then I had it, I was out of stuff. And so I made a cocktail with it and I did not like it in... Uh, like a Manhattan-esque cocktail, no. Yep, I remember that. We were um, That was towards the end of the first season. I remember you mixed that in because you ran out of the whiskey you were using and you were not yeah, a fan. I was not a fan. But I could see how a scotch and soda would be good. And I don't yeah. mind it here, but I think it also, it's probably because Uncle Nearest is very smooth, is very sweet. It has like a, a sweetness to it. Um, it's very easy on the palate. It has a, it has a, a very like low burn and, and sort of sweetness at the end. Okay. And so I don't think that it's sort of, it's not that, I don't know. It's not like night and day between the two, but. They're definitely different things. They're, they're different, but not so. Yeah. So dramatically where you're just sort of like your palate is shocked. Yeah. I'll leave Monkey Shoulder at this. I feel like Monkey Shoulder is a good summer whiskey. Like a lot of folks transition the alcohol they drink in the seasons. Like people who usually drink whiskeys in fall, winter, and then clear stuff in the summer, whatever. I drink it all year long. But I think- is for (laughs) round the clock. Consumption. Okay, all year. But I I feel like this would be great in club soda. And it'd be great on a hot day because it doesn't have that heavy, sweet, that some like bourbon specifically carry. They have that kind of like heavy, sweet, warm and spicy feel to them. This is a little bit lighter. It's a little more orange zesty. It's clean. It it has a bit of a clean taste to it. And I think it'd be great on a hot day if you wanted whiskey on a hot day. So the Uncle Nearest is, uh, it it has a little bit of the burn to it, but it's very sweet. Okay. So I'll put a bow on this because you're, as you're starting to like taste the two of them, I'll kind of wrap up this piece and then we'll talk more about tasting and how to go about doing it next week. Uh, so there's three steps really involved with tasting or three major rules, I should say, when it comes to tasting. The first one is be kind to your nose. So whiskey is typically at a minimum 40% alcohol by volume where wine and beer are much, much lower. So you can kind of jam your nose in a wine glass and you're not going to do any damage. If you were to jam your nose in a whiskey glass, you can essentially immediately numb your entire nose for up to an hour just because of the amount of ethanol that you're inhaling. So give yourself a little space between your nose and the glass. They recommend starting with the glass right around where your lips are and then getting a little bit closer as your nose gets used to it. But don't swirl the glass and jam your nose into the glass. You're not going to be able to smell shit. Hey, Um, lesson learned. (laughs) I should have told you this three minutes ago. Uh, but ease into smelling. So step two is ease into smelling the whiskey. Um, start with the glass, like I said, at about your mouth um, and then kind of move it closer. And they also suggest that you keep your mouth open 
because as you're smelling in through your nose, if you keep your mouth open, it allows airflow to move through your nasal cavity and it'll prevent that ethanol burn. And it primes your so mouth many, to start tasting things. So many things could be said right now. You know, I'm just rolling with what they tell me. Um, and then the third part is the kind of the tasting and the savoring piece. So don't just throw it past your tongue and quickly swallow it because that's all you're going to get is no, the burn. No, we always swallow slowly. Slowly. That is a lesson in life. Mm -hmm. um, otherwise, you're going to miss the bulk of the flavor and you're just going to get the burn on the back of your palate and you're immediately going to be like, I don't like this. It burns. It doesn't taste great. But your tongue isn't as receptive as your nose. So you need to give it more time and more space. So you need to use the real estate of your tongue. Um, this way you get more out of the experience. So those and are usually, the three things. Um, just for your reference and our dear audience's reference, I usually swish it around in my mouth for a count of three. Oh, okay. I don't know that I've ever done that. I, I try to retain it for a little while, but I don't know that I've ever like swished it around. A little mouthwash action? I'm not like mouthwash. I'm not like... <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I, I just, it's a little like swish, swish. You know, move it around with your tongue. Get your tongue all up in there. That's really weird. I just did that with the rest of the monkey shoulder and I got banana, <laughs> like overripe banana. I don't, that's Why? really bizarre. <laughs> the jokes just write themselves. Praise be, that's what I was gonna say. <laughs> I cannot, I mean, I'm trying not to walk into them left and right here. It's like, <laughs> it's like you're challenging me not to be an inappropriate asshole on our show. I'm, I'm seeing how far I can push before your will just breaks in half. Well, I am here to be kind, as my shirt says. Okay. Well, that's all I had. So next week, we're going to pick up kind of where we left off with the whole tasting piece of the chapter from the book. Uh, so for now, I'll pass it over to you, because I want to hear more well, about Uncle Nearest. That's a wrap. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm here, as I said earlier in the show, I am drinking Uncle Nearest 1856 Premium Whiskey, which is from Tennessee. Um, and just to sort of, we'll talk a little bit about the bottle first, and then I'll go into sort of the history about Uncle Nearest and the distillery and all that jazz sort of standard order here. So Uncle Nearest 1856 Premium Whiskey uh, is 100 proof, as I mentioned before, 50% ABV. It's aged in charred oak barrels. Uh, it has a maple charcoal, it's maple charcoal filtered, which we'll get to, which is sort of this type of filtering that occurs uh, in sort of Tennessee. It's, it's oh, Lincoln County. It's, it's what's deemed the Lincoln County process. It's a charcoal filtering method used to make most Tennessee whiskeys. Um, it sounds delicious. The fact that it's like a maple charcoal, I yeah. understand charcoal doesn't taste delicious, but the fact that it's like a maple wood <laughs> sounds so good. You don't like charcoal? <laughs> Raw charcoal. Um, oh, who doesn't? But anyway, 1850, it's a premium, uh, a, it's a blend, one, a premium aged whiskeys that are between 18 and 14 years old. Um, as as I can see and Nicholas can see, and it's sort of described to me on the, to me and to the world on the website, right? It's a caramel color or caramel. I don't know how you say it um, to each their own. That's a fight um, waiting to happen it's a, right it's there. It's a light caramel color, you know, uh, or a deep golden hue, if you will. Um, as they say on the website, the nose is a bale of hay or dry grass, stoned fruits. I don't know about that. Okay. I definitely get the, how many years did you say it was aged? 
uh, it's a blend of premium age whiskeys between 18 and 14 years old. Okay. Do you remember the price point on that? Something 50, 60. 50? Okay. I was going to say, that's, a, that's an aged whiskey. Shit. Yeah. But we'll get, yes, we'll get into more of that. Um, I, I definitely get sort of the, maybe not a bale of hay, but I sort of get that grass notes when I smell it. Um, okay. As you can probably in- hear me inhale, which is really classy on my part. <laughs> um, it's, uh, you know, I'm going to take a sip. It has like a, uh, it's a spicy sweetness on the front. A little bit of spice, more sweetness than spice, and a very light, as I like to say, burn. Right. Okay. Which so is interesting very, that it's 50% it's, alcohol by volume. It's very easy on the palate. It's very easy to drink, I think. I'm also an alcoholic, so I'm, you know, I'm just kidding, folks. I'm really not. Um, but I like it. And I've probably given you no more information. What the website says is the palate is a spicy car- caramel caramel up front with uh, hints of maple, then it mellows with dried fruit and floral notes. Now, listen, listen. I get a little bit of that. I don't know that I get floral notes. I don't even know what floral notes are. Um, I don't eat many flowers, so. If we um, reference the Scotch Whiskey Research Institute's flavor wheel, you might be picking up on things like roses, violets, or lavender when you smell it. Maybe, oh, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I took out my earpiece. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, Maybe, now this is what I find fascinating. On the website it says, Sweetness and spice reminiscent of a freshly baked oatmeal raisin cookie. Now listen, I enjoy deeply an oatmeal raisin cookie. I know it's to each their own. I know some people are not uh, into oatmeal raisin. I am. I don't know that this whiskey speaks to me as an oatmeal raisin cookie, but it is sweet and it is easy on the palate with a, a low lingering burn. And so I think it's very palatable. Would you say you can pick up on baking spices? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Because that's what I think. When someone says to me, the translation is when you say you can pick up on- I get the spice cooking, and I get the sweetness, but like- Yeah. This, the, I think the, the barrier I have is when people try to be overly artistic in their descriptors, right? Where I'm sort of like, no, I've had no meal raisin cookie and whiskey is not no meal raisin cookie. Yep. Like, I'm sorry. Like, I love it. I get it. Um, And I get get what you're trying to attempt to do, but like, as the untrained palate that I have, I'm just sort of like, "Mm -hmm, mm-hmm, If you're telling me it tastes like oatmeal raisin cookie, I want it to taste like an oatmeal raisin cookie. Now, at some point, and I don't know that I have... I don't know that I have it in me to do this anytime soon, but at some point we do need to talk about doing the peanut butter whiskey to see if it legit tastes like peanut butter whiskey. It I is, know you- Listen, I've had it. it. There is a degree of peanut butter taste to it. It is sweet as all get out, which we uh, all know is not my jam, but we will do it. Okay. And we will do it for our audience. Yeah. I feel like the bulk of that is it's marketing. When you're saying like oatmeal raisin cookie, it's a marketing ploy to get someone into the drink that might not now, have initially come sure. to it. Now, what I will say is they describe the finish as long and rich and uh, pleasantly sweet on the palate with notes of vanilla. And I get all of that. 
So I, I agree sort of with the finish. It does have a long, low spice, sweet finish to it. Okay. Yeah, I'm gonna need to find a bottle of this. I haven't seen it locally, but now I'm interested. Because to me, raisin means it's sweet, it's easy to, to kind of, you know, palate. And then oatmeal cookie to me says it tastes like baking spices. It tastes like cinnamon or allspice or clove. That's what I, that's what I translate that to in my head. You know, the worst part about when you drink more and more and you talk about this is you're like, well, maybe I do taste raisin. <laughs> <laughs> you start to convince yourself this is what's going on. I know it's, it's tragic, really. See, um, what you need to do is you need to pour it over vanilla ice cream and then see what the experience is. Oh my God. Uh, you're welcome. One, I don't keep vanilla ice cream in my house, but I should. <laughs> I, listen, if I was, put, ladies and gentlemen, this is a great suggestion by Nicholas, but one that I will not be doing because if I was pouring whiskey over ice cream on a regular basis, <laughs> one, I'd be 400 pounds, and two, I'd be drunk all the time. And that should, neither is for my best health. Wait till I drop ship you a crate of ice cream. No, thank you. Anyway, I want to talk a little bit more about the distillery and sort of the history. Uh, so Uncle Nearest is named after Nathaniel Nearest Green. And you're all like, who is that? And you know what? We should all know who this person is. So Nathaniel Nearest Green is a formerly enslaved uh, person who actually taught a young Jack Daniels how to make whiskey. I love that fact. Let that sink in. That's awesome. Everyone listening. Um, so uh, that is the history. That is the amazing history behind Uncle Nearest that I think everyone should know. So uh, fun fact is that Fawn Weaver, uh, who is the current, I believe, CEO of Uncle Nearest Inc., of Uncle Nearest Whiskey, uh, in 2016 or so, uh, learned a little bit about the history of Nearest Green, uh, the Tennessee slave who taught Jack Daniels how to make whiskey. Um, and then she read about it, I think, in an article or something in Singapore, according to the New York Times, and then decided in 2016 she wanted to go to the Jack Daniels distillery into the county and learn more about the history of it, and, and ended up doing this extensive dive on the history of uh, Nathaniel Nearest Green, um, ended up collecting uh, to the count of some 10,000 documents and artifacts related to uh, both Jack Daniels and Nathaniel Green. Um, and some of this stuff is actually in the National Museum of African American History and Culture. But through it, you know, really started, it really recognized that Nathaniel Nearest Green, his nickname was Nearest. That's how he was referred to back uh, in the 1800s uh, in the outside of, uh, is it Lynchburg, I believe? Lynchburg, Tennessee is where um, Jack Daniels and everything is located. I believe so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but basically, uh, Nathaniel Nearest Green was the first African-American master distiller in the United States, both in terms of while he was enslaved and then after he was, you know, uh, emancipated from slavery, was considered one of the preeminent master distillers in the country and like taught a number of people, including, as I mentioned, Jack Daniels, right, who went on to fame and fortune uh, yeah. with his sort of whiskey. Seriously? Yeah, it's, it's an amazing 
history and story. And so really, uh, Fawn Weaver did sort of this deep dive and then talked about the history and shared it with Jack Daniels. And there was this, there's this interesting, um, I mean, there's a New York Times article we can actually put on our um, show notes that we can share with people who can get sort of a background. But she ultimately ended up deciding to sort of launch um, its own brand, Uncle Nearest, right? Which she has sort of launched herself. It's a minority owned uh, business uh, that produces Uncle Nearest whiskey. It's all, um, she's the CEO. And as I said, it really focuses on a blend of whiskeys that are 18 to 14 years old out of Tennessee. I believe, you know, the Shelby, they're based in Shelbyville. And I believe that locations, I don't know when it officially opened, but I know that their original batches of whiskey were not, um, were similar to how we talked about Sagamore before mm-hmm. um, at the end of uh, season one, where it was a pro- proprietary blend that was purchased. Yeah. I don't know if it was a pro- proprietary blend that was purchased, but I know that the, that the supplies of the, uh, at least the original Uncle Nearest bottles came from other distilleries in Tennessee, <laughs> ironically, not Jack Daniels. Um, <laughs> gotta love that history, right? And a little right. bit of a uh, thing. But what is commonly referred to as the Lincoln County process of filtering, right? It's a unique filtering of bourbon through sugar, maple, charcoal that we sort of discussed earlier. That was what Uncle Nearest, is what Uncle Nearest uses in its uh, process, but also it's what you know, Nathaniel near a screen taught to Jack Daniels. It's sort of the, the famous way that Tennessee whiskey is made that gives us its level of sweetness. Yeah. It's like the Tennessee whiskey signature. It is the Tennessee whiskey signature. And it, and, it, and it was, from my understanding, it was brought here from Africa, right? Hmm. Um, that sort of methodology, at least from the, inig- uh, the original. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you drunk. There the, we are. The original uh, research that I did prior to starting our show. But it's an amazing history. I really, 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 really want us to go take a tour of the 270-acre facility in Shelbyville, Tennessee. Someday soon. Yes, that is my goal. And I want to learn so much more and I want to bring it back to the podcast because I feel like I am not in any form or fashion capturing the unique uhness of this and the and the history, right? Because I think, you know, we've talked about this throughout season one and we talked about we're talking about this now, right? Is that I think that our understanding of whiskey in America is so skewed and incorrect in so many ways, right? Yeah. I think we think of Kentucky and Tennessee as the starting points and particularly Kentucky as sort of like the house of bourbon, right? And what I talked about in the final episode of season one, when we talked about Sagamore Distillery was that no, actually whiskey originated in rye whiskey in particular here in the Mid-Atlantic region of the United States. And then going on to learn, right, that the, the method, the common method of making tennis, Tennessee style whiskey, right, originated with uh, Nathaniel Nearest Green, who you know, was basically a master distiller when he was an enslaved person. And then when he was emancipated, continued doing that work and training people like Jack Daniels to do that work and continue, right? And it's just so ironic that, not ironic, I shouldn't say it's not ironic at all. It is tragic in so Mm -hmm. many ways, right? Um, That it takes till 2016 
for that story and that history to sort of permeate uh, the national consciousness and for us to know that, right? And to sort of know about Nathaniel Miraskreen, his contributions to, to whiskey and being the first master distiller in the United States and sort of the amazing history behind Uncle Nearest Whiskey itself. One, it, it's, it's great and it's gotten a shit ton of amazing reviews since it was launched in 2017. Uh, and I actually just saw it on the local news the other day because it is one of the, the fastest rising uh, whiskey brands in the country. But Jack Daniels and Nearest Green Distillery, I think have formed a partnership. This is based on the local news, so I could be fucking all of this up because I didn't do my due diligence before talking about this, but um, have formed a partnership to do sort of an apprenticeship program for people to learn the art of craft distilling. That's really cool. And actually a local person, this is why I was on the local news, uh, a young African-American woman who was on the local news has sort of, is doing this apprenticeship and wants to do this and like launch her own distillery, a minority owned business, uh, um, you know, an African-American led distillery, which is amazing. Uh, and it's amazing to me that near screen distillery is, you know, was started by Fawn Weaver who sort of delved into this history and was like, no, we need to like, elevate this story it needs to be told it needs to be shared and i'm going to do it and we're going to launch this sort of initiative and so it's really cool so with that i feel like you've opened up an opportunity for us uh -huh. so i'm going i'm going to challenge you oh no because we don't currently have this on the website but i very easily can add a blog and i feel like you very easily could write an amazing blog post providing the additional level of detail and about I Uncle Nearest. Here. No, not what I was going to say. I feel like you could provide a, an amazing blog post providing an additional level of detail and context if we were to add a blog to the website. Oh, yes. Yes, I win. Look out for that, folks. So Paul so, will be writing a blog post about Uncle Nearest in the, the very reason, near future. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, the reason why I did the... Uh, uh, with Anna. It's not because I don't think this is an important story to share. It's because I am a blogger mm -hmm. and have my own blog that I think I briefly mentioned in season one. It's DC's third favorite otter. Which we still haven't gotten to. Blog. Uh, yes. Uh, that I do write for still on rare occasion when I feel uh, something burning inside that I need to share. Um, jokes write themselves. Oh, fuck so long story short, I'm going to give you this story, ladies and gentlemen, because you are deserving of it and I've had enough to drink where I'm going to share. But the reason why my blog is called DC Certified Honor, um, the history behind it is back in the day here in the District of Columbia, there was a uh, delightful gathering that occurred in the gay community referred to as Otter Crossing. And it was to celebrate and bring together uh, people who uh, were otters, were fans of otters, aspired to be otters. Um, I don't know how else you would like to describe it, Nicholas, but that's how I'm choosing to describe it in this moment. I'm gonna let you just um, tell the story. And for those of you who may or may not know, what is an otter you're asking yourself? I mean, I know the one at the zoo, yes. 
we all get that they're cute, they're furry, but they're also ferocious. That's why it's one of my spirit animals. An otter in the gay community is a fit gay man, uh, fit-ish gay man, one who has a swimmer's build, who's sort of, you know, slim to a degree and hairy, like has some hairs, you know, on the chest and wear knots. Oh, um, God. It's basically a subset of the bear community and the bear community, you're like, the bear community, what, girl, you're teaching me so much today. I know I am. The bear community is a uh, community within the LGBT community, at the gay, the gay male community in particular, of um, gay males who are sort of huskier, stockier, stockier, huskier, hairier, um, and sort of self-identify in that. So long story short is a dear friend of mine, David, who launched Otter Crossing here in the district when it was sort of happening uh, back in forever ago, 2012-ish, 2011-ish, had this one night where he, the long story is uh, the the National Zoo here in Washington, D.C. ended up getting um, a number of uh, Asian, new new Asian clawed otters uh, that they were uh, welcoming to the zoo. And so Metro Weekly, which is a gay publication here in the district, then decided to partner uh, with Otter Crossing to determine and find DC's favorite otter, as in the gay male variety. And so my, my dear friend David decided uh, to approach me and was like, you have to enter this contest. And I was like, but do I really? And eventually I was convinced as such. And the way the, what, what am I talking about? The contest, oh Lord Jesus, someone's, Basically what ended up <laughs> was that we were asked, there were like 13 of us or so who were interviewed in Metro Weekly and asked like, why are you DC's favorite? Otter? Like one, what's your name? Blah, blah, blah. Why are you DC's favorite otter? And we had to answer the question and then it was posted online and people could vote. Um, I believe the answer I provided was because I was cuter than Adrian Grenier. But long story short, my dear and delightful friend and housemate, Melanie, was like my campaign manager and was getting votes and trying to secure votes because she wanted me to win. I came in third. Nothing wrong with third. I love it. And that's sort of where the blog came from. One, because a friend started introducing me as DC's third favorite author. And that sort of stuck. And I was looking I, around the time I was thinking of starting a blog and I couldn't uh, think of a name for it. And then my uh, friend Zerlene, who uh, was my colleague and communications director for the organization I worked for at the time, was like, oh my God, that should be the name of your blog. And so I was like, bingo, there it is, DC's third favorite otter. Done. And I am DC's third favorite otter uh, in perpetuity because Otter Crossing is no more and that contest was never held again. And that, folks, is the story of DC's third favorite otter, who will be writing a blog post on... Today's whiskey. Oh my God, I just dribbled whiskey down my shirt. Oh, and that's your third favorite otter, folks. Yeah, that's why he's third. That's why he's third. Uh, in conclusion, folks, we've had a good time. Uh, we've talked a little bit about how to properly taste your whiskey. And I have committed for the umpteenth time to bother my husband to make us our own custom whiskey wheel that'll be forthcoming in the future. And Paul's told us about not only his acclaimed title, but also mm. Uncle Nearest, which we'll be learning more about on the forthcoming blog very soon. 
next week, we're going to be talking a little bit about adding water to our whiskey. That is something that Paul will be covering coming directly out of the book. And I'm going to say, if you're covering that, I am probably going to introduce us to Green Spot. I think Green Spot will be the whiskey for next week. Okay, that sounds good. Hmm. It's been good. It's been great. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.